The following podcast contains opinions from paid professionals. The information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is not advice. Gambling is not a financial strategy. For free and confidential support, call 1-800-858-858 or visit gamblinghelponline.org.au. Welcome to the very first edition of Horse Racing 101. I'm Paul Joyce and I'm joined by the delightful Keon Dickens. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm great. So what we're going to try and do here is something a bit unusual. We are going to try and educate and entertain our viewers and uh, we're going to do it in hopefully a fun fashion. Are you up for it? I'm up for it. We are essentially putting... Some more tools in punters' toolbox. We are. There's a lot we're going to try and cover in four episodes. Obviously, first of all, I suppose we should introduce ourselves because not everyone knows who we are. Uh, people who watch Sky Channel certainly do. But, uh, yeah, I'm Paul Joyce. Obviously, I've been in the racing game for 20-odd years, done a lot of different things from jockey managing journalist uh, and, at the moment, travelling around Queensland with you, covering the races in southeast Queensland and uh, trying to find a winner and, obviously, uh, keep everyone entertained in the process. Well, I'll just talk about myself then. You do that. That's that was just such a, it's a great career you've had, um, particularly in this space. Uh, mine was a little bit different. Um, I've, I've ridden in races. Um, I then went to track work as I grew taller. And I ended up in Queensland. I took a horse from Dubbo in New South Wales to target the Rocky Mackay and Townsville Cup circuit called Tora Tora Tora. Did that, came away with the win in the Townsville Cup, which was fantastic for the late Tommy Maholland. Um, and that sort of basically got me to move up to Queensland as a track work rider. Um, and I landed on Tony Gollins, in Tony Gollins' stable when he made the move up from Toowoomba and did a bit of travelling with his horses uh, as a travelling foreman. So um, after that, when I started a family, I was doing some work with the um, apprentices up here in Queensland, and here I am now at Sky. That's right. You've done a great job too at Sky for nearly two years, and uh, when you started, you were just a host. But uh, after not long at all, you were itching to get the tip out there and you love doing your form. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. We'll sit back and see how you go. Uh, but obviously, anyone who's watched Sky and uh, kept, keeps us a record of how you've gone over the last two years, it's been a phenomenal performance. And uh, I'm sure you've got just as many followers on the tip as what I do. So uh, you're doing a great job there. And we're going to delve into a bit of your brain today in this episode and find out what it is you do uh, to find those winners. And hopefully, a few punters watching this show may be able to get something out of it. And I will stress from the outset, Outset, Kian, that mm -hmm. if you're a professional or a semi-professional punter watching this podcast, it's probably not going to be for you. We are really aiming this, this for your recreational punter who sits mm -hmm. at home, loves having a bet, is passionate about their racing, and they just want to get a little bit better at it. And I'm convinced if they sit through these four episodes, they'll definitely get a lot better at it, improve their punting, and who knows, maybe even become a bit more of a regular winning punter. So that's what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And the absolute ambitious goal of the whole four episodes here is that by the end of it, I think we'll get some people to be able to price their own markets, not yep. only price them themselves, but understand why it's such an important tool to develop if you're looking for value and trying to make money on the punt. So let's see how we go. We're going to give it a red hot crack and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun along the way. You're right to go? Yes, certainly. And I think too, like our point of difference, we're trying to bring those point of difference in. Obviously, we, we both look at our form really differently and we'll, we'll discuss that. Um, but another thing I want to touch on, you know, speak about horses as they are horses because um, you can get a lot, you can get caught up in data and ratings and times and things like that. But at the end of the day they're not robots and they're very complex animals too so if we can touch on more of that and that's definitely if you have a good eye for a horse something that'll take you a long way 
Exactly, and we're going to get stuck into that in this very first episode. That is where we're going to pick your brain. But first of all, we're going to try something we hear all the time, Kian, and you'll hear it on TV, you hear it on radio, you hear different punters argue about it, and it is the ultimate question of what is value? Because we hear it all the time. You hear someone get on, they tip something at $1.70, mm-hmm. and they say, well, I've got it rated at $1.50, therefore it's value. Then you'll hear someone else say, you can't give a value bet unless it's $10 or double figures. A $6 bet, is it really a value bet? Well... Everyone's probably right in their own degree. The guy sitting on the couch who's watching the races on a Saturday, he doesn't want to see a $1.70 bet and be told that's value. Not because, if he's a $5 punter. Because for him it's not value, yeah. exactly. But he wants a $10 tip on top of his value bet. But what actually is it and how, how do you quantify it? Well, that's what we're going to have a really quick look at now. And I've brought some props in that are going to help us and you're going to get involved in this. Yeah. So first of all, we're going to dive straight in. I've got three props. I've got a coin. Mm-hmm. I've got a dice. I call it a dice. Mm-hmm. It's maybe a die, but I'll go with dice. And I've got a pack of cards. Do I need safety goggles? No, you don't. <laughs> so you just need a good <laughs> pair of hands. And you tell me you've got great that hands. That I've got, but I know what's going to happen. So, so <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're going to start with a coin. Right. All right, so you're going to catch? Yeah. Ready? Go. Great start. All right. Alligator hands. So a coin. We've only got two options with a coin, right? We've got heads and tails. Mm -hmm. So the odds of one landing is 50%, the odds of the other is landing 50%. So when you're converting odds to a market, which is what we're going to try and take step by step here today, Mm -hmm. the probability says 50%. 50% equals $2, right? Just like a kid learns their timetables, I want you to start learning how much a percentage is worth in a price. Yep. And 50% is $2. It's the easiest possible way to start. So if you're having a bet on this coin flip and you're getting $2 heads or tails, that is absolutely a perfect market. There's not value. There's not no value. So flip that coin, call heads or tails, see how you go. All right, come in, spinner. Heads. Tails. All right, so you lost that one. But yeah. you're betting at $2. Now, if you're in a casino and they're seeing that game and they're like, all right, I'm going to give you a $1.80 heads, I'm going to give you a $1.80 tails, would you play that game? Mm-mm. Why not? Because it's not value. Exactly. Now, what about if they're at the casino and they've had 30 tails in a row, every punter's throwing the cash onto tails, they're making a fortune. So the casino manager says, we're losing too much money here. We're going to roll the price in on tails to $1.50 mm-hmm. and we're going to put heads out to $2.40. Then would you play? Overs. Yes, your back heads all day, right, because it's value. So in a really simple example like that, that is what value is. In the betting marketplace, it's anything that you're getting a bigger return back than the actual percentage odds reflect, all right? Mm -hmm. So that's number one, you've passed your test. Number two, we're stepping up to a dice. Can you catch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, did you catch that? I dropped it. Did it slip through the keeper? Um, okay, look, I'm going to say I caught it, right. but I didn't. Okay, that's all right. Don't, be, don't pick it up. It's good. We don't need it. We're just going to... Pre- Actually, we probably do we, need we it. Do. We don't need it. Okay, you quickly pick it up. Mate, I don't know where it's gone. It's gone. It's a black dice Why too. couldn't you have brought a white dice? Oh, because I wanted to challenge you. <laughs> Wait, you're not going to believe it. It's it gone. right under your foot. Is it really? Let's do take two. Well, I'm not going to go get it. Am I going to go get it? You've got the longest oh, arms all the way in back. Australia. I think you can okay, get it. Okay, it's coming all the way back. Hang on. It's, it's, it's literally it's literally under your foot. There's no, right. there's no time frame for this. You ready? Set? Right. Go. All right, we got it. Beautiful. All right. All right, so now this time you've got six outcomes, right? Numbers six one through six. Six sides on the dice. Right, so how much should you be getting back whichever number you want to pick to roll in? Should you be what's, What odds should you be getting on a fair $6. market? Exactly, right, because it's 16.6% each, each option. So pick a number, mm-hmm. roll it, and see how you go. Four. Right. Six. Oh, you got it in practice. Didn't get it to there. That's too bad. All right, so same example here. Now, if you're at a casino and they see this game, they're going to $5, whatever number rolls in. Mm-hmm. Would you play that game? Mm-mm. No value. What about if they had a special promotion on a Friday night? One to five, you get back $5. But if you roll a lucky six, you get $10. Yeah. 
Go for it. Go for the six because it's valued. Because it's got yeah, and you've got the same chance. Exactly. So that's just simple example again. Now this is just building a foundation, Kian, for when we get to horse racing markets. So these are real basic, obvious outcomes. There's only several options. When you get to horse racing, there's that many variables that we're going to cover it. Yeah. But it's certainly not as easy as what we're doing right now. Yeah. So the last one we'll do, which is a little bit more complex, is a pack of cards. Fifty-two different cards in this pack. Mm -hmm. I want you to pick the Queen of Hearts, but I'm only going to give you fifty dollars if you get it right. Is that value or no value? No. No value. What about if a special promotion, I'm going to give you $65 <laughs> for a dollar if you can pick the Queen of Hearts. Would yes. you play then? Yes, I would play that. All right, we'll pick a Do you card. want to do it? <laughs> Will we pick one? Yeah, yeah. I've... Have a shot. Something with cards and, and I know where the Queen of Hearts is. All it right. looks like there's about 1,000 cards there, not 52. There's only 52. Come on. Everyone's waiting for this. You'll be a guru if you get it. All right, turn it over, show the camera. No, it's not the oh, two spades. Oh, that's so close. When I saw the coin, <laughs> I'm kidding. That's so close, man. All right, good, good grab. So what we've covered there is just really laying the foundations of what we're going to do going forward. We're looking for what is value in the betting marketplace. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can describe it more clearly than what we just did. Yeah. Uh, so you have to look for value if you're punting in the long term. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going but to But that lose. is black and white. It is. There is, yeah. We're going to get a lot more variables with horse racing, which is why which is why people love it so much. Mm -hmm. That's why punters love doing the form so much because it is so complex. Yes. Uh, and you never quite get the perfect answer as we do in those examples. Yes. All right. So we've done that. So that's laid the foundation for going forward. Let's hope it works out. It will help you develop your markets going forward, and it will give you an idea of your percentages. And the one thing you really have to learn from that is percentages transferred to prices. And it's that simple once we get right to the nutty end of working out our own markets. Mm -hmm. So you're on top of it through stage one. I'm all over it. Very <laughs> impressive. All right, now we're going to get into Kian's brain, which <laughs> when I thought about this, Look. I'm like, this is really dangerous territory we're going into mm -hmm. here, right? Like, I've got to know you pretty well over the last two years and this could go anywhere, but we're going to try and concentrate on your horse racing knowledge. Yep. And uh, that is extensive. And it's certainly an interesting way that you approach doing your form. Yeah. Compared to what you touched on earlier, who data, spreadsheets, crunch the numbers, that's not you. Mm -mm. I'll describe you as a bit more the old school. In poker terms, I'd say you're a field player. And in, in racing, I think you use a lot more of your, just your natural skills, your learnings, what you've developed in the past to find your winners in the future. So we're going to delve into a little bit. You can take us through how you approach doing the form. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we've got a meeting at the Sunshine Coast coming up on a Sunday. The form yep. comes out on a Friday. What's the first step for Kian Holland? So the first step I go through is I pull up the fields, essentially, so you can get your, uh, your scratchings and things like that. Uh, gear changes, drop down all the gear changes, and then I've got my replays up. And that's how I sift through it. So that's my, I've got a very bread and butter formula that I use um, in terms of I hone in on replays. Um, I probably see more out of replays, but we don't always have things like trials and things like that. So you've got to work backwards into their form if you've got that data available. So I probably really leverage off, you were going to say, we're going to talk about what's your favourite races to tip in two year olds, maidens, and class ones for mine, particularly. Um, you know, at the provincials where sometimes you are getting those barrier trial replays. So I look for horses that haven't had luck in the runs. So this is going back to my replays. And then horses themselves, how they move and things like that, how, how well they cover ground, um, how many things they did wrong in that trial to say that or suggest that where they ended up finishing or how they finished 
there's a lot of improvement in that horse and you know it's going to naturally improve under race conditions. That's probably what I focus on. Another thing I like to look at, and I think it's where I find my best value, is if it's not a first starter that I think goes up the wrong price um, off of a trial, it is um, horses with trainers that are going to remedy something like a choke down uh, and you see a tongue tie go on. So again, it's going back to those gear changes, which are ultra important. And I've made a lot of um, yeah successful tips off of last start choke downs. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say, one of your strengths that I've noticed is obviously those races you just mentioned, maidens, two-year-olds, class ones. And the reason I think you are so strong in those particular races is because there's not actually a lot of data out there. You get to a maiden, a few horses may never have started, a couple have only had a handful of starts. Two-year-old racing, definitely. Yeah. And even in a class one, you may have three or four horses that have won at their first start, they're all piling against each mm -hmm. other into a class one. So there's not a lot of data out there, which gives you the opportunity, I think, to develop an edge. And we're going to talk a lot about an edge in betting, because for me, it's the ultimate thing that I look for is the edge that I can have over the rest of the market. And my opinion watching you is that that is your edge because when you get into a benchmark 80 where everything's had 25 starts and the data goes back as far as you like, you've got guys sitting there with spreadsheets, sectionals, yeah. algorithms, and they're basically printing out the market straight in front of them within two minutes. Makes it very hard for someone like you or I to It's like compete. there's too much data available and you're getting away from the horse itself. Like sometimes I'll, I'll be influenced a little um, where you, you do have to hone back into your speed maps and things like that, whereas where you have your maidens or your two-year-olds, speed maps aren't as... Well, there's nothing tangible there. You can't really forecast a genuine speed map and, and things go out the window anyways with green horses, as we know. But you're right, with those sort of... Your, your benchmark um, races, and sometimes there's too much data available. And I know I've made wrong moves with being influenced too much by the speed map. Um, the weights and things like that, when I should have been focusing on that particular horse's runs or, or where it's starting out and being able to forecast when that horse is ready to win as opposed to what the numbers are spitting out. All right, so I was going to just say that because most punters, you're looking at the obvious things. You're looking at weights, you're looking at barriers, you're looking at track conditions, you're looking at different courses for horses, you're looking at the jockey, you're looking at the trainer. Uh, you're obviously looking at any horses that have met, met each other at their last start or two, right? They're the, they're the things that most punters will just dive straight into. Yeah. And, and you obviously take that all on board, but it's not the biggest thing you look at. No. One of the other things I've noticed with you that I find very unique is that you're big into where horses are at into a campaign. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean a horse might be first up, second up, third up, or it might have a little freshen up into another run. And you seem to find a real edge in those horses in particular. Obviously, different trainers have different knacks of getting horses ready at different stages of a prep, but... A stage of a preparation is something you seem very big into. Yeah, it's and it's it's, I guess for my if we work backwards, um, when people are probably ready to drop off a horse, what can you see in its form that's suggesting that it's too soon to drop off, or if it's had a really under par run and you just think you know what it's reached its mark. I find, because I know that punters, this is something tangibly they can look at themselves in the form. We see checkered form. So only a handful of starts, spells, lengthy spells and things like that. It just, it is, it just paints a picture of that horse has had issues and they've not been able to get that horse right. But if you can see the form around it strong and you can see it's had these really good runs, don't drop off it too soon. You know it's not reached its mark. And that's when you get that horse at a good price. And it does depend where it is in its campaign, how long... If, if you see a horse that's only had ever had two starts and it's been tipped out, all of a sudden it's had four starts, they know they've got, you've, they've got their horse at its best. Things are going well at home to suggest that it's getting ready for another win because it's already at start four. They've been able to keep it up 
you know, for, for more than two starts. So stick with it as opposed to dropping off it. All right, so now we're going to touch on something now that uh, probably still is a bit raw for you, but we're going to get into it anyway. Now, it's that famous day at Warwick, eight from nine, would have been the card bar a cruel photo finish. <laughs> and mathematically, <laughs> if you'd taken every horse for a win, it would have been well over a million dollars for a $1 outlay uh, to get all nine winners, which when we talk about punters or professionals that use spreadsheets, statistics, data, crunch the numbers and spit out spreadsheets, mm -hmm. they're not tipping eight from nine on that particular meeting. There is no way in the world because you had horses there that were $31 into $9 and they were first starters or first uppers. They're just horses that wouldn't have been found by, by, by your professional punters, but you've come within a dead set whisker of tipping the card. Now, first of all, just take us through the emotions of that day and sort of what it meant to you and what it means to you going forward to try and find that elusive card? Mm, I think, well, driving there, you know how hard work can be. When, when do you start, a, start getting out to your country tracks? There's not a lot tangible. Like, you don't have as many replays and it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder to line up your form from a non-tab and things like that. So driving out there, particularly with the nine races, because, I mean, you know how much I want to tip the card. It's just one of those things I want to do. I have to do it. I have to do it. But I would think, like, I'm going to have more chance mathematically at a six-race meeting or something like that. So driving out there, pretty happy with a couple of the value horses I had, um, in particular my best bet, which was a maiden, and would have never thought I got that close. I think for me that day, because um, you were on track with me, and if we knew how, like, it was just, we knew it was going to keep rolling, um, apart from Marley Doon, who got beat a nose. But I think you kept reminding me, or you just kept voicing that. You said, oh, you know, you weren't surprised it happened. I was due, because I was sort of having a few good days and things like that. And for me, that was my big push, that whilst it wasn't the perfect end to the day, I've got it there in sight and I will tip the card one day. <laughs> yeah, well, stick stick by her, punters, because you're right. I mean, I've seen you from day one doing the form and even though you do it differently than other people I've seen do it in the past, it's certainly something very strong to it. And I would say clearly your competitive advantage over other punters is just your overall horse knowledge because I think a lot of punters come through the data entry levels and they all learn how to do a set of ratings, they all learn how to compare prices, they understand value, which is what we're going to get into in other episodes, but none of them probably have the horse knowledge that you've got. They haven't worked hands-on with horses as long as you have. So to be on track, looking at horses, taking away that knowledge and then funding it into the next couple of meetings that you go to, especially the more you work, mm. the better you seem to tip. When you get a three months on of consecutive work, you're seeing all the horses from one meeting go to another meeting, split up, come from Dolby to Warwick or wherever we're going to. Well, that day I was able to capitalise off you know, the benefit of being on track because the, um, I think it might have been flank speed. Um, when I said to you, I was like, really keen on this horse because I saw it at Dolby, I uh, saw it in the yard, like really nice type of horse, serious horse, I think, blah, blah, blah. It was kind of, it popped up $11 at Warwick and that was the one I was probably most confident about, albeit I didn't voice it too much because of the price. You know, it can influence you a little bit. And that winner was and, and it won like a good thing too that winner was the benefit i have of being on track and seeing horses which everyone doesn't have of course but that's something i like to inform punters of what i've seen what i can see with my eyes and what i've seen in the past and and comparing those horses because as we've spoken about my memory it's it's terrible i couldn't find my car keys this morning but i can still tell you what those horses looked like race uh start one as to what they look like at the end of their prep Six preps ago, I can just remember it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. No, it's for freakish memory with horses. Just that. <laughs> 
terrible memory Lacked with everything else. Hundred <laughs> percent. All right. So now we've covered off that. So that's Kian. That's Kian to a T. How she does her form. How she approaches doing her form. I suppose a couple of really quick questions. How long roughly would it take you to do a meet, an eight race card on a Sunday at the Sunshine Coast, start to finish? Oh, well over eight hours. I spent a lot of time on my form, and it's just it's replays. But form's something too that if I'm spending too long on a race, I'll pack it up, go and do something, and come back to it. Depending on time, it's obviously a balance as yourself, you know, with kids and things like that. And I don't feel right if I go to the races and I don't think I've spent that time on that race. Sometimes I can see it a lot clearer and I can flick through it really quickly, but I'm dead set sitting on it. I'm re-watching replays. I've got my top four. Again, I'm, I, we're the same. We don't look at the market before we do our top four, but if there's one that's just dead set value, well, you're inclined to put it on top to have a throw at the stumps, or if there's one that's just going to win, well, you do that and you back the other one, um, you know, just, just for as a saver. Um, yeah, I will spend a lot of time on races, probably more than most, I would think. Yeah, I'd say so. I yeah. think eight hours to do a meeting start to finish is, is a long time. And that's that's minimum. I could, yeah. And I'll do it over two days. Yes. I'll, yeah, go, no. I'll go to bed and think about it and get yeah. back up and do it because, yep. you know, you'll think of other things. And I've read I've read your notes on your form guides. It's one of the things I love to do. And uh, just getting insight into how that brain of yours works and uh, I find it uh, extremely interesting. And I think I've learned a fair bit myself, actually, uh, sitting alongside you for the last two years. And I've tried to incorporate what I think are your best bits into my form study, which we'll get onto in episode two. But before we round out the uh, Picking Kian's Brain, uh, favourite track to bet on? Sunshine Coast, because many different reasons. Circuit-wise, it's a beautiful track. There's lots of territory for the horses to work with, but it seems to be a really happy hunting ground for trainers to take and kick off horses. So um, you'll get horses on debut there that go on to do a lot better things in terms of black type races and things like that. And that's where they usually turn up at the sunny coast. The other one is Gatton. I'd like to see what my strike rate is at Gatton because I assume it would be okay. And obviously it's a shorter circuit track and you can hone in on horses that roll forward, but it's it, it plays quite fairly too, depending on the distance and things like that, the, wherever the start is. But I seem to have a lot of luck at Gatton and I love tipping there. Love it. Now, we've identified you're a good judge. I'll put my hand up and say that any day of the week. A couple of quick questions, though, on your actual punting because it's one thing to tip, it's another thing to punt. And I've seen areas where you can improve, but <laughs> I'm going to ask you... How do you bet? Sort of what type of bets do you generally have? Mm -hmm. and, and what areas can you see yourself easily improving in? So I just go, um, again, maideners. I, 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 and you I, bet straight out one horse? Bet straight out one horse. I'm learning to have the put, put the multis on, particularly for all my selections for the place because I was able to pick it yep. off again at Gatton the other day, which was, I don't know, 250 to 1 odds, so only a very small outlay, mind you. I'm not a big punter. Yep. Um, but I like to have, if I'm going to have a little crack at something for, for my outlay, it is just a single bet. All right, so that's Kian's punting in a nutshell, mm -hmm. and uh, hopefully the punters can get something out and of I'm that. And I'm not each way better. Not each way so better. So my value bets, you know how you spoke about what, what is value? In my head... If I'm going to tip a value horse, it is has to be over double figures. That I, like it has to be double figures, but I'll back them to win. I don't. I'm not tipping them to run second or third. Like they got to win.
Okay, Kian, it's time for our third segment of the show where we are going to discuss gear changes and how important they can be for punters and, of course, trainers. So we're going to talk remedial gear, and these are gear changes you will find in Racing Australia. And, and as I alluded to, how I do my form, whilst it's quite, I think my processes are quite plain. I've just got, I go off Riser, Racing Queensland, and then I'll see how many winners that race has churned out and, and follow that through a little bit. Remedial gear, very important very important and it's not a one-size-fits-all with horses so you've got to um, go on the journey with the trainer as they change gear and things like that but it can just pay absolute dividends absolutely and we are going to delve into gear changes in every episode on this podcast mm -hmm. but the first week we've done we've sent you around the grounds and you've caught up with tony Gollan. and this week we're going to talk about the tongue tie benefit of a tongue tie on a racehorse is to stop it from displacing its soft palate so by holding the tongue in a more in a more constant position the horse when it swallows it won't displace that that soft palate therefore choking down what are the signs that you look for when a horse is going to benefit from a tongue tie really high recoveries after gallop uh, persistent coughing sometimes after gallop uh, horses just not finishing their races off and they'll make a normal respiratory noise either on pulling up or when they get back to you in the scale area. So whilst tongue ties are a great remedial piece of gear, not all horses take to them and some resent them. What do we do moving forward with those horses? Horses that resent tongue ties can be a little bit tricky. Sometimes they still need something to help them from displacing that soft palate. You might try a crossover nose band, which I often think is a little bit more restrictive than a tongue tie. So you might just use something a little bit softer, like a tongue control bit, which just might help that horse keep that soft palate where you need it. Well, that's really interesting, Kian. And no surprise, the tongue tie is one of the key gear changes you look for. Yeah, it is. And we're, oh, to give an example, and what a punter can see at home, and this is exactly what I saw. It was a horse called Chikara trained by Billy Healy. And I'm pretty sure it was its first up run was at the Sunshine Coast on a metropolitan day. It was behind Golden Boom, Matilly rather. Matilly won the race, Golden Boom place. Uh, speed really dominated. This horse settles back in the run and I thought it was the best run home. It then went to Eagle Farm behind Freedom Rally. And I tipped Freedom Rally that day but had Chikara in for second because it was well over the odds too. It might have been about $20 odd dollars and travelled beautifully into the turn and then just stopped, went backwards. So that's your key sign that a horse has choked down, particularly if you know it was it, what I like to say, my phrase, too bad to be true. And it certainly was. Tongue tie went on next start. I didn't read the stewards report. For my eye, I just thought choked down. Tongue tie went on next start and I tipped it at the Sunshine Coast and it won and it's gone on with things since. So particularly with that horse, I know that horse and it could be really aggressive in the run, which is a horse that's going to profile to, to, to choke down uh, when they're at that high speed. But that's what punters at home can see when a horse is travelling into the turn, its form prior suggested it was going well or its barrier trial and it stops abruptly, goes backwards, too bad to be true. Look for those gear changes next up. All right, Cal, we're on to our fourth segment of the show. Now, this is called Foot Fetish. Don't let it put you off because we're talking to a farrier <laughs> and we're talking to one of your mates, Sheldon, who's going to help us with everything involved with a horse's foot. Mm -hmm. And this week, we're going to touch on the synthetic hoof filler because this is a gear change that often punters will get turned off by. Mm. But during your Around the Grounds <laughs> chat, we found the out wording, that, the wording there. as we're about to find out, sometimes we shouldn't be so concerned at all. Fact or fiction, should a punter not back a horse because synthetic hoof filler has been used for the first time. Fiction, complete myth. Um, it's all, all just there to rebuild the hoof wall and, and make the horse sound. 
So there you have it, Kian. Something we shouldn't be worried about at all. No, certainly not. If you see synthetic hoof filler as a gear change, don't let it deter you. It's just a tool, basically, for for farriers to create more wall of the foot so they can get a nail in there. They 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 can only work with what they've got, and it's just it's just a tool to improve it. And it's something I definitely. Don't blink an eye out when I see it in the gear changes. Yeah, pretty interesting, Kian. And if you want to know more about uh, synthetic hoof filler or anything that Sheldon's got to talk about, we do have it up on the Tab YouTube channel. So jump on there and have a look, and uh, Sheldon will be explaining so many more things about the horse's feet. Yeah, definitely. And your three, I guess, hoof things in gear changes, go, go and watch it because he talks about synthetic hoof filler in detail, bar plates and concussion plates. And there's a lot you can learn from it. All right, Kian, we're stepping away from the serious stuff just for a minute because mm -hmm. racing has its own language, as mm -hmm. we're going to get stuck into during these four episodes. But you've also got your own language, and that's something I've come to realise over the past couple of years. You've got certain words that I may have never heard before, <laughs> not quite sure what they meant, but they just keep coming up, they come up, they come up. So in the end, I've sort of worked out what they all mean. But those at home or those that are watching this podcast might think, what is she talking about? <laughs> so we're going to cover one word each week, and we've called it a Kianism. For a horse, Debutuing. <laughs> At least tongue. <laughs> I need a tongue tie. <laughs> I think maybe too. I, is it? It could be from where I'm geographically from, from a small town. I don't think that's got. It could be to do me. I'm not sure. It's just. I you. just have yeah my it's own language. You. So week one, episode one. Mm -hmm. Explain to everybody. You use it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. What is a weapon head? A weapon head is a really blanket to umbrella term. So it can be used in, in terms of a horse or a person. So that person is someone who's just, you know, they burn the candle. They're just M-A-double-D. And they're just someone who spins you out. They spin themselves out and, and they're just a dead set weapon head or a wep, uh, weapon. I guess with a horse, uh, you'll see a horse. If I, if I call it a horse or weapon head, it's a horse that probably does a lot wrong and overcomes that and still wins races quite um, bullishly. Uh, that's what we'd call a weapon head with a horse. All right, Kian, thanks for that. Now, also in racing, we have our own language and there are plenty mm -hmm. of punters out there who probably struggle to get their head around a lot of the lingo we mm -hmm. use. Just a quick one which came up earlier today is when a horse races greenly, yep. in particular under pressure. Uh, we're obviously not talking about a horse changing colour, are we? So <laughs> no. how would you describe to someone sitting at home what race Greenly means. So if, if you see a horse race greenly in the run, it means it's very new. Um, they can over-exaggerate in behind other horses, so you'll see their heads coming up and things like that. You'll see them changing stride. Uh, all of those things point to a green horse, and it's just newness to racing, and they've not yet learnt their craft. All right, Kian, we like to have a lot of fun at the races, away from the races. You and I just laugh a lot and we take life... We're not very serious We're people. not, in general, but sometimes... <laughs> we are we, when we need to be. We can be. Mm -hmm. So we are going to add a let's get topical into this mm -hmm. podcast where we talk about something that's happening at the moment in racing that needs to be addressed one way or the other. Yep. And we can even get our viewers to chime in with their thoughts. In fact, that's what we'd love to do, in particular with mm -hmm. this segment we're going to cover today. And that is the problem we've got at the moment with excessive scratchings. Yep. So the problem we have, which was exaggerated or at least highlighted mm -hmm. recently at the Sunshine Coast, last race on the card, 13 acceptances, three horses jumped out of the gates in that race. Now, from a punning viewpoint, I don't think punters want to bet on three-horse fields. They certainly don't want it involved in the quaddy, particularly the last leg of mm. the quaddy. And it really does, I think, detract punters from betting early when there's the potential for 10 scratchings to come out and basically the entire market gets taken out in deduction. So... 
I don't think we want to encourage punters to bet late. I think we'd love to encourage punters to bet as early as possible. Yeah. But without the confidence to do so, you'd be crazy to bet in, into a race like that. Yeah, you certainly would. Um, for, for mine, I was absolutely cheering because I did this race on Sunday morning. <laughs> I did it in about what would usually take me, like I said, a minimum now. It took me about 15 minutes. Um, and, of course, I was on the, the horse that in the, was in the middle of the ruck in terms of odds. Uh, and it was just nosed out, but you're, you're right. There's And another thing I find too, when I'm doing my form, when you've got um, a lot of acceptors in these bigger fields, generally for some, some reason the best horses and the ones that are up, up in the list of ballot order, they draw 23 or, you know, they draw 160 million, whatever it is, because there are so many acceptors and your emergencies are getting gates ones. And, you know, I know you need, you want to get those full fields, so it's trying to offset one problem, but you're actually faced with another because those horses will scratch and go somewhere else. So, so your debt for your field is is missing. So that's what we're bringing up to talk about this week in Let's Get Topic. We mm -hmm. want our viewers to send in their own thoughts on how we can solve this scratching problem. And I think you do have to wear two hats, which I can wear because yeah. I'm an owner and I'm a punter. Mm -hmm. Now, from an owning viewpoint, they pay the bills. They want to put their horses in the race they can get the best return on. Mm -hmm. I totally understand that as an owner. But from a punting viewpoint, we've got to protect the punters to some degree because they fund the industry. If they're betting early into a Sunday race and you end up with 10 scratchings and only three horses and they're getting hammered in their deductions, they're basically getting a dollar ten about the winner because of the deductions, then something has to be done about it. So something has to be done about the excessive amount of scratchings. We're not going to give the solutions today. Obviously, other jurisdictions have their rules on vet certificates, etc. Mm -hmm. But we understand that there are lots of options for owners to send their horses to. It might be the day before, the two nights before. It might be a Monday meeting across the border. So there are options for owners and they want to send their horses where they can win, but something has to be done about it. So hit us up on our socials, send through your thoughts, and we will discuss those going forward. All right, Cal, we're almost at the end of episode one. It's been a lot of fun so far. And this isn't a tipping show as such, but mm -hmm. we are going to pick your brain just one more time on this episode. And we're going to have a look at a horse that you want punters to follow, but not your typical horse to follow because there is a special reason you want punters to keep an eye out on this horse going forward. Yeah, we're going to keep with the theme of, of tongue ties and choke downs and things like that. And I guess the sense with black boogers, you're usually looking at what was a disguised run, what was possibly an unlucky run. This imp this race in particular, we had a very nice progressive up-and-coming filly that started favourite, and then we had a horse called Goblin De Quo, who's got some really rock-solid form on the board in her only seven starts, in particular listed um, company. Um, I know she, she she raced against Shani Sniper at the Sunny Coast and was able to put him away nicely enough, and he went on to win a listed race at preparation. However, what I think punters would have thought in hindsight to, to drop off her too quickly is, A, well, that winner goes good, which that winner does go good, but we don't want to get away from her too much because she sat on this horse's hindquarters, she travelled nicely, she was off the bit at the 600, very uncharistic is the word? Uncharacteristically. Uncharacteristically. That's it, you got <laughs> of there. Goblin because she's a horse that burns a candle at both ends, she travels toughly in her races and she's always there at the last 100 metres, so it was very below par for her. I think a lot of people walked away saying, well, the market told the story because she was a bit massive drift and this horse continued to firm. It's a very classy horse, but it was what I would say, too bad to be true. I would assume she's choked down. I don't know that, but I've got no doubt they'll remedy that within the, the couple of weeks before she has her next start. We'll possibly see a gear change go on, tongue tie, 
press the button if we do. <laughs> All right, Kian, there you go. A tongue-tied gear change to keep an eye out for Kian. Goblin de Quo was the name of that horse. All right, thank you very much, Kian. That's episode one, done and dusted. But those that are keen to watch us back for episode two, I can tell you what we're going to cover right now. We're going to delve into the mechanics of successful punting and you're going to start to pick my brain a little bit as to what I do as far as punting goes and trying to keep in front of the ledger. Of course, we're going to have another Kianism and we'll have another look at a gear change of the week. You win some, you lose more. For free and confidential support, visit gamblinghelponline.org.au.